0: This is the Lead Speakers podcast with Scott Lloyd. In this podcast, you'll hear engaging conversations with everyday leaders and discover their motivations, desires, and passions. Most importantly, hear practical applications and advice for
1: becoming the leader that you've always wanted to be. Welcome to Lead Speakers.
0: Welcome, friends and family, to this edition of Lead Speakers with Scott Lloyd. And I'm so glad that you're able to join me today. I'm thrilled to have my friend Malik Blade and he is the author of the book, Whole Brother. Uh, Malik, how are you, my friend? I'm good. It really is an important, important subject. And um, can you just kind of give us uh, the reason why you felt inspired to write this book? Because there, there is this misconception, I think, especially uh, in the white community, that uh, when we talk about black fathers, when we talk about black families, That they are in trouble, maybe in in a a way that white families aren't. Um, But I know that you've done a lot of research into black fatherhood and the black family specifically. So talk a little bit about your inspiration in writing this particular book.
1: Yeah. So I'll say that I think that there are a lot of notions out there about black families and black men and fatherhood and so on and so forth, and. It's a it's a tense thing to discuss, and I'm glad that uh, us being friends, we can have this conversation. But and many times uh, you'll see on the back of the book, I talk about uh, black people don't have a space. A lot of times to have community discussion about ways that we can better ourselves, because a lot of times political pundits will then use those things against us to to feed stereotypes. So first, I'll start with the idea of fatherlessness. Uh, some will say well that's just a myth it's not real it doesn't happen uh and while i think it is too much or going too far to say that all black fathers are absent i will say that it is a a reality that many are uh and i don't think that's something that's exclusive to the black family but i do realize it's a reality having dealt with an absentee father myself but also several several peers along the years navigating through this idea of understanding how they are or how they should be as a man with a strained or non-existent relationship with their father. And specifically in the book, I'm not just talking about absentee fathers, but I talk about four different types of fathers at the beginning. And then uh, I discuss the implications of those type of fathers on the sons. Those four different types of fathers are the absent father, the toxic father, Uh, the present but emotionally distant father and then the single mother functioning as a father
0: and what do you hope to accomplish with this book um in the black community because just just outlining those types of fathers i i know that even as as a white man growing up in america i had that emotionally distant father Mm -hmm. as well so so a lot of these principles are applicable no matter where you find yourself in America, but I know you're specifically writing to the black community. So what is it that you want to accomplish with this particular book?
1: Well, I'm glad you said that. that and that's true. The ideas and the themes presented here are a reality across the board. And I just speak to some of the specifics as to how it's played out in my experience and in many black families. But yeah, anybody can identify with a dad who was just kind of there, but emotionally distant. Anybody can have an absent father. Anybody can have a toxic father. And there are several single mothers of a variety of races who have have had to take on, take on both roles. So I thank you for highlighting that. But my goal ultimately is to establish a new norm for us. Uh, Hopefully generally speaking, as all men, but starting with the black community, uh, new norms on how we view masculinity and manhood. Because I think that's ultimately what we're dealing with here is what does it mean to be a man? And as far as the myths that I'm addressing, they are myths that men tend to believe that end up hindering relationships. So my goal is to establish a new norm on how we view manhood.
0: And I think that's excellent. You write early on in the book, what weighs heavily uh, on me is that the norm for us as black men is to live and die without unpacking or understanding how we are personally affected by what our fathers did or did not do. And I think Mm -hmm. that's, that's a powerful, powerful statement because I think sometimes Especially as white Americans, if we look at what's happening in America today, uh, you hear this kind of rhetoric uh, among white Americans all the time that, you know, why are these black men behaving this way? Why are uh, uh, black people acting out in this way? And so sometimes mm-hmm. in the white community, you have this concept well, these are individual and isolated incidences. But I know one of the values in the black community that you point out here is that no, this is connected. This is a larger community that is uh, being impacted. So it's fathers that are impacting sons, that are impacting grandsons uh, for generations. And in particular, if you look at the American context uh, with our uh, unfortunate history when it comes to relationships with the black community, This is something that is um, connected to all of our history. You want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So I think that, like we said before, in many cases, I think black men are misunderstood. You know, you and I spent some time together working at the same university. And something I noticed there in in a variety of contexts is, you know, we had student athletes. A lot of our athletes were African-American men and me working in the, in the dean's office having to do with discipline, some of the issues that came up were black men that were having infractions. So I'm dealing with the tension of having to play interpreter for both sides of this. I think in many cases, some of the young men that came through my office and, and in other context, depending on who's looking at them, one could label them a thug one could label them a bad guy or a bad hombre, as our president would say. But I think that that uh, uh, sometimes those things are misunderstood. Obviously, thugs do exist, right? But I do think when you're having this discussion of masculinity and how we present ourselves, I had to play the role of interpreter in understanding some of the emotions that are at play. Uh, there, I know, exists in some cultures, because Black people aren't monolithic, but I do think this does exist within our culture, this idea that men have to hide their emotions. And it's, a, it's an idea that's more of a protection protectionary tactic or protective tactic. And while I know that when I see that, and I know this doesn't mean this is a bad person, but this person doesn't feel safe, so they're hiding their emotions. They're being emotionally distant to protect themselves. Others might see that as, oh, this is a bad guy that's not complying Uh, not listening, not willing to work with me. So I think it's, I'm glad that we're having this conversation. And I'm glad that I've had quite a few other uh, white friends reach out and say, hey, you know, I'm getting the book too. I know it's not for me, but I'm going to get it. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, go ahead. you can buy a book, you know, I'm not turning away any uh, book purchases, but I think the conversation is important for people outside of our culture too, to better understand what's going on so that those assumptions don't happen and we don't see things like a, like a George Floyd or a, the gentleman in Atlanta, I believe his name was Rashawn. Uh, you know, I think some of those things have to do with just not understanding how, how black men work.
0: Yeah, and I think that is so critical and so important, especially at this time where we're having this national conversation about law enforcement and how mm-hmm. they deal with young black men in particular. Um, and so you brought up the, the incident that happened uh, the other night with the, the man in Atlanta that, that lost his life. He was, he was in the Wendy's drive through there. And if you watch some of that video, what is interesting to me is that the man was uh, cooperative. Uh, he was willing to engage with the police officers up until the moment um, that they said they were going to arrest him. And if you do some research into his backstory, he was on probation. So he was caught up in this system as, as many people get caught up in. And, and, and that contributed to the way that he responded to the police officers. And unfortunately, it lost uh, for him. It, it ended in the loss of his life. Um, so imagine, right, imagine if those white police officers could have better understood his context. Um, and, and, of course, I have strong opinions about this. I, I don't believe that it was, from what I've seen, I, I don't believe that it was a justified shooting. Uh, it, it makes me very uncomfortable to know that a man that was running away that had to be awakened twice as he was sitting in a car waiting to get a cheeseburger was lost his life. Um, so, I think what you're talking about there would be very helpful and and you don't have to speak specifically to that instance unless you want to, but I think an understanding of why uh, young black men in particular living in the context of the United States of America connected to all of our history feel um, this, 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 this this feeling that they've got to Mm -hmm. owe up to the system that they've got to put on this, this act, if you will, the macho tough guy, there's a reason for it. And if we could understand the context, I think it would be very helpful.
1: Yeah. So there's, there's several layers to that. i will yeah. one that's a little bit lighter and then we can go a bit deeper. So I think back to my, my college days. So I went to a predominantly white school uh, in college and I was one of a few black men there. And one of the things that it reminded me of is just how different we perceive masculinity uh, growing up. I think that white men tend to have a lot more freedom in terms of that uh than than we do and here's an, here are a few examples of that in college. quite a few of the guys on my floor would play around in ways that uh that w- weren't normal for me so they would uh they would moon each other they would you'd show up and somebody's in someone's bunk bed that shouldn't be there uh and you know. A lot of them were were friends of mine. I, I don't think that it was, uh, I don't think that any of them were homosexual by any means, right? But that's just kind of how they play around. But I can also say that the context that I come from, some of the things that they do that are just fun weren't allowed where I came from because we have to maintain this strong brute uh, image. So I realized immediately, like, oh, these guys have a different framework than, than what I have. And another example of that is, I remember there was, there's a show called, uh, is it Lip Sync Battle? Yeah. So Lip Sync Battle, first they, they had Channing Tatum, who's, who's white, he's an actor, and he, he lip sang a woman's song. So he had on a wig and women's clothes and stuff. Uh, and a lot of his fans loved it and thought it was a great performance and everyone knows who he's married to and it's no big deal. Now, flip that, a black actor named uh, um, Rashir Gray, who was on a show called Empire, he played Hakeem, he's black and he's a rapper, he goes on the show, he performs a woman's song, he's just like a woman, and a lot of his audience, which is more of a black audience, were like, well, man, you know, that's gay, you know, why'd you do that? They're trying to emasculate the black man, you know, and, and the responses were completely different. So I think these realities of what's okay and what's not okay are very different from culture to culture. And I think our, um, our barometer for what's acceptable in terms of what's just is a lot lower and what we can accept. And to go back, I think it depends on what type of neighborhood you come from. So I don't want to be this narrative that all black people are from the ghetto or the hood or, or the inner city, but some are and in that context uh if you're in a high crime area if you're in some type of street life uh a big part of of survival there is ensuring that no one uh can damage you or hurt you and part of the way you keep people from wanting to intimidate or or attack you or take something from you or take advantage of you is by maintaining a hard face uh If you look intimidating then you're less likely to get tried by somebody that's essentially how the culture works and the same thing happens in in prison as well so for those that were home went to prison and came back there's a whole different persona or aura that you give off i remember when i first went to college and i started working there everyone was like he doesn't smile he doesn't smile enough you know of course part of the issue was i was from washington dc and then i was in the south. And in the South, you talk to strangers. In D.C., you mind your business. (laughs) So, you know, when I got to North Carolina, they were like, well, he doesn't smile enough. He doesn't look happy. But that was just my norm. I was used to just having a stone face all the time. That was just the culture I came from. And it wasn't even that I felt the need to protect myself. It was just my norm. So I think uh, the, the other piece of it is outside of what people find culturally acceptable, The other piece is the type of neighborhood that you come from. And if if you come from uh, an environment where you constantly have to protect yourself, you tend to not have that relaxed posture that allows you to have fun and smile, play a jokey joke, and so on and so forth. If you're always in a posture of needing to protect yourself because you don't know what could happen, then how you present yourself is going to be quite different.
0: Yeah. And I think that is, I, I think that's so helpful especially in the context with which we find ourselves in the nation right now, having this national conversation uh, about law enforcement. Um, if, if you think about that, if you think about the, the clash of culture, so to speak, and, and what we can learn from that, if you were to speak specifically to an, a white audience, How could you help us better understand what is happening now with young Black men, with the Black Lives Movement? Is there something specific that is going on uh, in the Black culture that we need to understand as uh, as white people that just at first glance, we would we would be like, that doesn't make sense to us. So is there Mm -hmm. something specific that that would be helpful uh, so that we can better understand what's unfolding before our eyes?
1: Well, I would I would say it's how we're perceiving these different videotapes of, of black men being killed. Uh, I know that there are some out there that say that if these guys just behave themselves, they wouldn't have these interactions with police to begin with. But I think we must remind ourselves that uh, people of all cultures have interactions with police. It's a matter of who the police choose to pursue, unless you walked up in the police department and started something. But more often than not, It's a situation where the police are pursuing a certain person. So first, you have to deal with the fact that that as the police are pursuing an individual, how you respond to the police will be different based on what your experience has been. And I believe that when we're dealing with this and we're seeing these different videotapes, I think there's a negative disposition in terms of what to expect from police because we've seen injustice in the past. We've seen abuses of power. And then in terms of these videotapes that are coming out, I think the perception on our end, and I don't think others are realizing this, it's not that we want criminals to just get away because they're Black. That's not what's going on. It is that the infractions that they're being approached for are not things that someone should be dying for. If we go down the long list of unarmed Black men that have been killed by police, I would say that if I'm not mistaken, all of them, none of them killed anybody. Yet somehow they end up getting killed for a potential false $20 bill. So from our perspective, it is look it is an issue of police, those in power looking at looking at us as disposable and feeling free to just rid the world of another black thug or assuming or whatever they the case may be that we're just disposable because i think unfortunately if you switch the roles and you made the people being killed an elderly white woman all of a sudden our perception would change so but it shouldn't matter the age or race or gender of the person it should just be human shouldn't be treated this way but i would just i would just let that simmer for a bit how much different would your response be if george floyd was Georgina Floyd and he was, she was Caucasian and 65 years old, you know?
0: Absolutely. And, and that is a powerful, powerful point because, um, I mean, you can look, I mean, we have, we have instances where, uh, police officers have arrested white young men. I mean, the, the shooter, the, um, the church shooter comes to mind. Um, and you know, before he was, uh, after he was taken into custody for for killing uh, nine people, I believe it was uh, as they mm-hmm. were worshiping uh, in their service, um, they take the young man at, to Burger King and to and get they, a burger. Yeah, yeah before they and, and so he's taken into custody. He's alive. Uh, he's sitting in a jail cell this day. But but George Floyd, um, you know, uh, reportedly passes a a twenty dollar uh, fake uh, bill and loses his life as a result. Um, mm-hmm. and, and on and on and on it goes, right? Um, I mean, how many, how many white young men have passed out in a drive-through line, uh, being drunk, being intoxicated? And you have the incident the other night where the gentleman loses his life. So I think that is an important, important point that these young men, these young black men that are being killed uh, by the police, um, if 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 the infraction uh, f- for why they were being investigated was was perpetrated by a white man or a white woman, it would be a very, very different story. And I, I tell this story to people all the time when we talk about this idea of of white privilege. And, and I define it like this. Even though I grew up in the poorest county, Uh, In America, I understand that I fared much better than my black counterparts, my black peers in that same situation and circumstance. I've never been treated as a suspect. I've never, it's never been assumed that I'm up to uh, no good Um, in routine traffic stops, even though I would get nervous as anyone would being pulled over by the police. Never in my wildest imagination did it ever cross my mind, this is going to end with me being dead. But mm-hmm. that is a reality for my black peers uh, every day in America. And that's something that as as white people, we need to understand.
1: Mm-hmm. And I would just add that it's unfortunate, and I think this is a, a ugly thing to say, but it shows, I would was- say, say, a concern for us as African-Americans, but it's just that I think many may not say this out loud, but but they might believe this idea that black people are somehow more criminal than white people, That, that, that we just do bad stuff more, are more evil, are more prone to sin, or whatever the case may be. And I think no one's going to say that explicitly, but I think that in and of itself is inherently racist. But in addition to that, it's this idea, uh, and unfortunately, it's, it's a black woman heralding also this, Candace Owens, uh, that presents this narrative that here are some of the bad things this person did in the past. And once again, we don't live in a justice system where you can just kill someone because you have some, some, uh, a record of things that you think that they did that were off color. That's not how it works here in America. It's not how it should work. And even then, that still, I think, shows a level of racism where we think that or, or propose this idea that it's OK to kill someone in the street because they had a few misdemeanors in the past. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're in America, of uh, are innocent of proven guilty. So even I mean, if, my, if I'm not mistaken, Dylan Ruth didn't get the death penalty. I think he got life, though. So we don't have the right to go shoot him in the face. Right. Even though he killed nine people, we don't have the right to go kill him. And I just wonder if these people that are propagating these narratives that George Floyd did this in the past, so he deserved it, or Trayvon did this, he deserved it, if those same standards would apply to a Dylan Roof who killed nine people. Yeah. So I think I, I'm concerned that many. Uh, of a variety of beliefs, but unfortunately within the Christian worldview, uh, think that it's okay to dispose of black people because they've done some uh, off-color things in the past. And I think there's some, some racism there that needs to be addressed.
0: I think that's a, that's, that highlights the disparity that is happening in America, uh, certainly. Uh, my guest is Malik Blade. He is the author of the book, Whole Brother, and uh, Malik, you open the book um, with this story of a, uh, a friend um, and you're helping, endeavoring to help her brother that is going through um, what a lot of us face early on in life, trying to figure things out. Um, but how you detail this story is very interesting to me because what you communicate through that narrative is that there's a lot that this young uh, man was facing that when you tried to help or when you tried to just give him basic instructions of life because of his context and because of the things that he had experienced he would interpret it very very different and would respond to it and i think that's very helpful and i want you to talk a little bit about that because sometimes those of us that see ourselves in a a place of wanting and desiring to be a mentor uh, especially to to young men uh, maybe to young black men, uh, sometimes in our efforts to help, we end up actually doing more harm because we don't understand mm-hmm. how our words are being received, heard, and interpreted. You want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so in, in context, in, in the book, I'm talking about a friend of mine, a female friend, who wanted me to to kind of help her brother out with getting his footing. He had moved to the area from their hometown and was just trying to get his footing and so on and so forth. And unfortunately, uh, I, I share the story in detail because I know that many others are in that position where before the age of 19, uh, several decisions have been made that are gonna have long-term effects. And that's why I detailed the story the way I did. So this particular gentleman before the age of 19 already had a, uh, a three-year-old child over $3,000 in back child support, and it was still accruing, uh, no job at that point in time, uh, other other credit card debts, uh, damaged relationships, lack of communication with the child's mother, lost custody of the child, and uh, some uh, diseases as well from uh, uh, an unruly sexual life. So, You know, the details are given because there are many young guys, regardless of race, that are out here kind of living a a reckless lifestyle with no consideration for the long term effects of some of these things. And I think in reality, we have to realize that there is no such thing. And this is one of the myths that I address later in the book, this idea that boys will be boys, where we give a pass to young men to make reckless decisions. But then we point, we wag our finger at them when they come of age and they don't throw those things away. No. Even though we encouraged it in their teens, we just expect them to turn 25 and just be mature. But you've been encouraging and accepting this bad behavior all the way up until this point. But to get back to your question, I think that in trying to help, it's important uh, to be patient um, especially if there's a situation where there is an absent father or some level of abandonment that damages trust and makes it hard to be open to receive direction from someone else. So I think that a lot of times the assumption may be that this person doesn't want guidance. This person doesn't want wisdom, but in reality, they're hesitant or they're stepping lightly because they've been hurt before when they open themselves up. And this gentleman I spoke to once again, his father was not in his life. And then he had a stepfather who was coming into the picture and then left very suddenly as well. So he had two major hurts with men in his life who were trying to give direction. so I completely understood why there was hesitation with me trying to help him in regard to those things. So I think patience is on one hand is important. But then there's also the other on other token, we can't help people who don't want to be helped either. You can't force your help on people. And. Uh, a third layer to this that I think is, is, is very specific, uh, since we're talking about white versus black and the interracial understanding, is uh, what i found is that in many cases, there are well-meaning people who want to have relationships with black people, specifically black men. But unfortunately, most times those relationships consist of mentor-mentee relationships or coming with hands out, wanting to help. And helping's not bad, but I think it's important to, to, to understand that white people can have relationships with black people that don't need anything from them as well. Uh, in, in the university context that you and I were in, I was in other schools as well that were similar to ours. There was this constant theme I saw of white families coming to the rescue of, of the black boy who, who was missing this or missing that. And while they were well-intentioned, I do think that set a tone for them or it fed the narrative that all black people are poor looking for a handout. And that's not necessarily the case. Uh, So, you know, my my friend Brian LaRitz says that, um, you know, while helping is good, white people be sure to have some black friends that have a higher credit score than you. And those are some of us that we do exist. So, (laughs) you know, let's, let's balance it out and recognize that not everybody is in that position. Yes, that compassion is great, but there are people out here uh, of a different race than you, minorities, who can be your peer and who you can also learn from. And there's one last thing I'll add because I know we uh, have uh, ears coming from a Christian space where there is this emphasis on international missions and serving serving people in other countries with the, the gospel message. Another concern that I I would add in terms of how majority culture is viewing minorities is that I've seen many go on these missions trips to to share the good news with people in different countries, and they come back and they say, man, I I went there hoping to help those people, and I was so shocked when I realized that they were blessing me. And that shows this, uh, I would say, Paternal view of people, where you couldn't ex, how could these poor brown people possibly offer something to me, you know? And I think no, once when people say that, they're not realizing that that's a loaded statement. But uh, we have to check our privilege and check how we're viewing other people. That's part I think American culture, but I also think it's racial too, where. There's this perception that the brown people, once again, are always in need and don't have anything to offer. When in actuality, uh, I think we all can benefit in learning things from each other, and skin color doesn't denote character. Uh, lightness or darkness isn't going to determine how a person behaves. There's no correlation at all. Your behavior is, is, is influenced by your, uh, the culture that you're in the people that you listen to, the things that you consume, and your morals. And we need to divorce ourselves from this idea idea that certain skin colors correlate to certain behaviors.
0: I think that's so well said and so very helpful and illustrative of even a a lesson that I had to learn again this week, Um, you know. Because as, as informed as I consider myself, right, about these particular issues, even in my writing, it, it still comes out, you know, and, and even in some of the things that I say, um, for instance, I, I wrote this blog piece this week, uh, uh, talking to my childhood friend, uh, basically, it was a flow of consciousness, but as, as several people pointed out, and rightly so, if you read that from a certain perspective, it still comes across as I'm Decentering him, uh, and I'm really talking about myself. So it's very easy to come across with this paternal, uh, white savior mentality. And if you think about our culture, it's reinforced by movies. Think about The Blind Side, right? Uh, Big Mike, the Sandra Bullock movie, where you know the the white family comes in and helps the underprivileged uh, black young man. He becomes a, a a football star based upon a true story, but nevertheless. The way that that story is told over and over again reinforces this idea that white people are good, white people are virtuous, that they're the savior, and everyone else just needs help.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and I think we need to get away from that idea, not just because it's, it's damaging to the people that they're looking at that way, but I think we don't study enough how that's damaging to white people to have that mindset uh, because it robs you of the opportunity to go into spaces and be vulnerable and not be the savior. So as humans, we have highs and lows where we are the one offering help, but situations where we are in need of help as well, uh, emotionally, financially, whatever the case may be. So I, I would I would just add that, that I, I, just as I want for black people, I would want white people as well to be able to express the breadth of uh, experiences that exist and not always feel the need to play that role.
0: Well said. Um, I I like what you write here. um, And I have the digital version, so I'm not sure which page this is on. But uh, near the end of your, your introduction, you talk about the fact that the black man is not an island. He is not a monolith standing alone. His actions help and hurt those he loves. And the time to change the harmful behaviors of the past is now. And then a few paragraphs before that, you write, one man with a renewed perspective can turn the tide of his family well into the future. One family can turn the tide of a neighborhood. One neighborhood can change a city and a city can change a nation. And uh, mm-hmm. we find ourselves right in the middle of a monumental change, hopefully, that will come uh, to our nation. And I think those words that you write there are so profound and so important as, as we consider where we're at um, as a nation. And so when you look at the black man who is not an island, he's not a monolith, but his actions and his uh, choices have implications for so many people, if you were to list um, just a few of the most important changes um, that if, if you could talk simultaneously to all of the young black men in America, what would you want them to know? And I guess in a way, another way of asking the question is if you could speak to your younger self, knowing what you know now, what, would, what advice would you give to the younger Malik? These are the things you need to do. These are the changes that you need to make because your choices have implications for the future.-hmm
1: I think it would be that individuality is important and that'll be your, your strength later in life. Uh, many are, are coming up in their younger years wanting to be accepted so they, they do things to fit in and become a carbon copy. When in actuality, what you, what they'll find is in, in adulthood, the people that are heralded are the ones that are bold, that walk to the beat of their own drum, and that don't uh, that stand apart from the fray. So I think that individuality is important, and that's across any race. And then even more specifically, it's this idea of. Uh, I think we are either indirectly or directly influenced on how we should be as men. So either we're raised by our dad and say this is the approach to take. And as we get older, we can keep the things that he taught us and throw away the things that we don't want to use anymore. That's direct, or there's indirect, where we, whether we know it or not, are modeling ourselves after images we see in media, in music videos, in movies, in the news, or in the White House. And then we begin to take those things as well. That's what a real man looks like. And we may not have a conscious moment where we say that but we begin to pick up habits from people that we think are admirable. And I think it's important to, to not do that because what, what people in the media are doing might work in their context, but it may not be transferable for yours. And you don't want to become a sum total of, of people who ultimately don't know you or have your best interests at heart. So it's important to be very strategic about who your influences are, uh, pick up the things that work for you and, uh, Lastly, I would say it's it's important, um, I, and that's that's the end of I guess me answering that for speaking to my former self. But I would also add for for all of us listening now, I think um, it's important for us to start fresh in terms of how we view manhood and masculinity. I think a lot of the previous ideas were based in patriarchy. Uh, Incomplete thoughts, well meaning ideas that were incomplete, uh, and a lot of ideas we created were made independent of women. So while we've decided that certain things make a man a man's man, well, what about a woman's man? You know, what about us? uh, What traits are we developing uh, that are pleasing, acceptable, and that still respect women? So I think it's important for us to get to a space where we redefine manhood with our new level of wokeness or knowledge. And that doesn't mean throw away all the values and morals, but it does mean that we've been misdirected in many ways. And I think uh, there are situations where you can remedy, put a Band-Aid on it, and it'll get better. But there are other situations where I think you just need to tear it all down and start from
0: scratch. Very good. The name of the book is Whole Brother. Uh, malik blade is my guest we've got just a few minutes left malik uh, for this podcast and really appreciate you and appreciate your work i want you to talk a little bit about um your experiences maybe growing up you you touch on this a little bit in the book and and how that lended itself to to what came out on the page
1: sure so i i had a, a unique experience because I was born in Southeast Washington, D.C., so some would call that the, the inner city. And then I had the opportunity to uh, attend private school. And then shortly after high school, I had a, a good paying job for a, a recent high school grad. Then I got a full ride to college, moved to the South, uh, did two degrees, bachelor's and master's. Then I go to work for a university in Oklahoma as, an, as, a, as a dean, and, uh, and then California, and then launching a, a nonprofit that uh, gives men nationwide access to mental health services. That's the whole brother mission, uh, which produced this book. So I had a unique experience um, from what one, what, what one would consider a, uh, one economic status to another. In a relatively short period of time, I still haven't, haven't hit 30 yet. So I had a, I've had a unique experience even before three decades in. And I think that I understand a variety. Because of those experiences, I understand a variety of contexts. So even though I come from a certain area, because of how I speak now and where I've been and things I've done, I won't get labeled uh, the thug type as some do other men where I came from. But because I also had that experience, I am not the person that has now found myself in a new context and now wants to divorce myself from it. I still see the image of God, the giftedness in the environments that I came from. And that's why I'm intentional about going back and uh, sowing seeds and developing those areas. And I, it is my hope that as a, as a country we would begin to see the value uh, in the communities that I've been in, the community that I came from, independent of their ventures and successes and achievements. I don't think that someone should have to accomplish the things that I have to be perceived as valuable or worth listening to. So I'm hoping we get to a point where you don't have to... uh, be successful for your black Lives to
0: matter. Very good. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the whole brother mission and what you're doing now and uh, what you hope to accomplish. And if someone wants to get involved or help uh, out with your uh, particular mission, um, obviously I encourage everyone to purchase your book. I'm enjoying uh, reading it, look forward to finishing it. Uh, Really have enjoyed what I've read so far but talk a little bit about what you're doing now, what you hope to accomplish. And if someone wants to support what you're doing, how they would do that.
1: Sure, I appreciate that. So a big part of of what we're doing is creating resources for the black community and building up the black family. So we have a network of licensed mental health professionals across the country that are prepared to service any man uh, and then we have emphasis on black men, but we don't turn away anyone of any race. So if men are in need of, of counseling, therapy, uh, or any type of mental health services, we have the team that's able to, to help them with that, regardless of where they are in the country. So uh, if you want to find out more about what we do through that, uh, the website is whole, W-H-O-L-E, com, And our mission is to equip men to be whole in every area of life. Our three core areas are the head, the heart, and the hands. The head is mental health, the heart is emotional maturity, and the hands are professional advancement. In addition to that, in this moment of, uh, of grieving with the loss of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and so many others, uh, I think one of the recommendations that i put out there is, for those that are interested in being allies, one of the big ways to do that is to support black orgs orgs that are they're building up the black community and that's how we do what we do as a 501c3 uh donations are what sustain our work so if you're interested in supporting this kind of work creating new resources there will be more books there will be book tours there will be more counseling there will be events uh, so if you're interested in supporting something like that you can also do that on our website wholebrothermission.com forward slash donate and lastly the book whole brother debunking the mr break the black family is available on amazon and if you like a signed copy you can get that from our website as well wholebrothermission.com forward slash shop
0: Malik, thank you so much you are um, doing literally the lord's work and uh, i'm proud to to know you i um, I, i'm honored that we got to spend uh, a little bit of time together professionally um, and i count you as a friend and uh, look forward to much much success for you and your work. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. This has been the Lead Speakers Podcast with Scott Lloyd. For more information, check out scottlloyd.com and share this content with a leader in your life today. Lead Speakers. Lead. Speak. Persuade.